0: The lowest temperature that was ever recorded in the United States, at least as far as my records are concerned, was back in 1888 in Miles City, Montana, when the temperature uh, registered 68 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. And that reminded me of the preacher that always took his temperature before he preached, and one day he could not find a thermometer, and so he used a barometer, and the reading was windy and dry. So... I trust that that will not characterize our studies together here each day at this given hour. But thank you so much for being here. Thanks to Brother Woodson and to all of those who served on that lectureship committee for the invitation thus to be here at Freed Hardeman and to study throughout the day this challenging theme of world evangelism. In the two previous days we have noted that we must be committed to a full evangelization of the world. The Great Commission still reads, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It is in all the world. It is in every creature situation. Jesus said in the parable in Matthew chapter 13, The field is the world. It is Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and indeed to the uttermost parts of the earth we must go with the gospel. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. We then noted that there are some very fine positive signs on the horizon in the church of our Lord today that are indicative of the fact that there is a commitment to this matter of evangelizing the world. And we listed some of these and noted them. But then we said that really when the truth of the matter is observed, that we must still face the fact that there is a world that is still out there that is lost. Less than 1% of the world's population are members of the New Testament church. So there is a world that's lost. Then we noted that it is a world that's lost, but a world that is ripe under harvest, and we gave indications of that. And then we observed that it was a world reachable, a world reachable, even in our day and time, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, all this was studied somewhat in detail by way of introduction to this series of studies. And now we observed that uh, when you observe what is being done on the positive side of the ledger, that's encouraging. But then when you look out over here to a world that still is virtually lost, we have such a tremendous challenge. But no soul-winning church is ever satisfied with a past or present accomplishment, nor is it discouraged to despair by any given challenge, though overwhelming it may seem. And so that being true, we must now uh, really dedicate our attention, our very selves, to the challenge of evangelizing locally and abroad. But apparently there are some hindrances to this matter or the situation would not exist as it presently does. In fact, not only are we, as Brother Bain said a moment ago in the prayer, Not only are we doing a poor job evangelizing abroad, but we will all have to be scrupulously honest and say that we're not doing nearly as good a job even locally in evangelizing. I don't want to belabor this point to the point of despair or to the point of uh, just uh, redundancy. But I have in my possession on the stand today some church bulletins that uh, have given through the years some comparative studies as to how they have been doing over the previous year or several years. For example, here is a congregation that averaged 280 in attendance during the past year in which this article was being written, and they had baptized in that previous year 19 people. Now, remember, their attendance was 280 on the average, and they had baptized 19. Here is one that during this particular year had um, uh, baptized 17. And then they had another year in which they had baptized 25 and then they had baptized the following year 18. There was a three-year study there. Baptized 17 one year, 25 the next year, and they baptized 18 the other year. And it's a congregation with about 400 in attendance. Here is one that has an average attendance of 437, and they baptized 34. Here are some statistics that came out of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. One of the preachers there ran some statistical surveys, and here were the results. There were 24 congregations that responded to this survey, and they had a total average in worship of 10,171, are congregational-wide, average-wise, they were averaging 424 per congregation. Now, notice that they were averaging 424 per congregation. And then, these congregations had baptized a total of 532, or on an average, of 22 per year. 424 in attendance, and they are baptized on an average of 22 per year. Now that is in Oklahoma City. And then in our area, in the Dallas-Fort uh, Worth area, here are the churches in Irving. And those of you who know of the metropolitan area of Dallas and Fort Worth readily identify the Irving area. there were four congregations in Irving that reported this given year. This was 1978, rather current. And all four churches had only baptized 44 souls. And then in the Arlington-Fort Worth area, this does not include Dallas, but in the Arlington-Fort Worth area, And that fairly well covers Tarrant County. And uh, the last count that I have, there were 88 churches in Tarrant County. And there are numbers of these who did report, and out of these who did report, there were 599 round figures, some 600 people that were baptized. I am at random. I have not marked these. I am at random going to list some of these figures, and I will give you the approximate number who are in attendance on Sunday morning. For example, here's a congregation where I recently preached on a Sunday, and there were probably between six and 700 people present, and they had baptized 33. Here is a congregation that goes between four and 500, and they baptized 27... Here is one that averages about 225, and they had baptized 25. Here is one between 4 and 500 in attendance, and they baptized 25. Here is one of the larger churches of the city, and they had baptized 20. And then here is one that has, on an average of about now, about 2,000, 1,800 to 2,000, and not that many back then, but still a good number of attendance, and they had baptized 30. And uh, here is another one, for example, that has about 100 attendants, and they'd baptize four. Here is one that has about 175, and they'd baptize five. And that's in a year. Now, I would no way at all want to leave a bad impression about Dallas and Fort Worth. I think that first place would be an injustice. And so I believe that As a whole, all of us who are here today can say that's about average as to where we live. Isn't that right? I think that's fairly an average of where we are. Here is a congregation, for example, in the western part of our state that uh, will have on Sunday morning about uh, 1,500 in attendance. They baptized 38. Here is one that had 468 in their membership role, and they baptized 35. Here is one that had 485 uh, average attendance, and they baptized 19. Here is one, morning worship 254, baptized 11. Here is one that baptized 20, 454, and on and on we could go. And so really you can see what we're doing. It seems like if a congregation has about 400 to 425, the norm, the medium of baptisms that take place are about 20. 25. And I think these are simply evidences of the fact that there is something somewhere that is hindering us in this matter of evangelizing the world locally and abroad. And that being true, how appropriate it is then for us to study in this series at 1.30 each day in the lectureship, hindrances to evangelism. Now already we have dedicated our studies to the following. One hindrance to evangelism is our sense of values is warped. We'll never do much about saving a lost soul until we come to believe it is of inestimable value. We'll never do much about spreading the borders of the Church of our Lord until we come to realize its intrinsic value. A warped sense of values constitutes one of our major hindrances. In the second place, there is the hindrance of our having dulled our consciences on excuses, both individually and congregationally. We then observe the hindrance that we have allowed our spiritual ardor, our fervor, and our sense of urgency to die down to barely a spark. And that in spite of the fact that our Lord died to sanctify or purify unto Himself a people peculiar, says Titus two eleven 11 and 12, Yea, a people that is indeed zealous of good works. Another hindrance to evangelism is we have allowed our convictions to waver, and we gave a series of nine questions yesterday asking, do we believe, do we really believe in these matters? And a sincere answer to these nine questions we believe probably more than anything else will reveal the basic underlying cause and factor as to why we are not evangelizing effectively locally and abroad. We then observed another reason for our failure thus to evangelize is we are not convinced that we are lost if we don't. And then we observed the principle stated by Ezekiel Also stated by Paul, and then also, of course, stated by our Lord. And then, when we closed yesterday, we had observed another hindering cause to evangelism is... We are largely leaving it to the so-called professionals, those who are among the trained, those who are called the menaces on the church stationery, those who are part of the evangelism committee within the local congregation. And we noted that one of our great and compelling needs in congregations of our Lord is that there must be, there must be a beginning and a maintenance of this matter of individual initiative. I'm a soul winner because God has commissioned me thus to do, not merely because I have been asked to serve upon that given committee or upon that given team. Now, with all of that having been discussed in previous sessions, I would like to continue today observing hindrances to evangelization locally and abroad. And thus may we continue by observing in the seventh place today that a hindering cause to evangelism is that we are guilty of the sin of substitution. And I am not primarily speaking of the sin of substitution as was committed by Nadab Navahu in the book of Leviticus chapter 10. But when I speak of the sin of substitution, I have in mind first of all that we are guilty of substituting training for teaching. Probably at no time in our history have there been more training series and more training workshops and more training classes where they're conducted in a metropolitan area by the cooperative efforts of sister churches therein, or whether it be in the local congregations where we are, or on Christian college campuses and so on. Probably never have we had so much training as we have had in the last decade or two at the most. But the great question is, how many of us have gone out from these training sessions and have really engaged? really engaged in the work of teaching our lost soul about Jesus Christ. You know, a man today can attend a fishing clinic, and he can learn just the finest and best and most accurate way to cast for bass. But he will never catch one unless he goes to the lake. In like manner, we can attend these training classes from now until our Lord comes. Unless somehow or another we cease substituting the training for the teaching, we will never evangelize the world. I believe that one of our great problems is that we are soothing our consciences by virtue when at least I am attending a training session. Rather than really getting out and engaging in the activity itself. We're reading more and more about professional students, men that simply spend their lives going through the various curriculum institutions of learning. And if we're not careful, we will commit that same transgression in the church of the living God. We'll keep the road hot going from one workshop to another, from one training session to another, rather than really putting into action that that we understand and know. I believe, secondly, we're guilty of the sin of substitution in that we are substituting words for works. We are substituting profession for performance. We many times talk to ourselves We many times talk among ourselves and we many times discuss these matters in business meetings. But our great, again, and compelling need is to really getting started in this great work of doing evangelism. Really engaging in it rather than simply talking about it and discussing it. How accurately has someone observed in days gone by that the devil never really gets excited as long as we are discussing and as long as we are deliberating and as long as we are planning. But the devil really gets excited when he sees us take off our coats and roll up our sleeves and really we begin to become involved in this matter of doing what of which we have been speaking. All of you have heard the story about the city boy that went to the farm and his... Granddaddy sent him out to feed the geese. He hadn't been gone very long, and he came back, and uh, Granddaddy said, Son, did you feed those geese? He says, Yes, sir. He said, What did you feed them? He said, I fed them some hay. He said, You mean you fed those geese hay? He said, Yes, sir. I said, I fed them some hay. Well, he said, well, did they eat? He said, no, he said, but when I left, they were sure talking about it. Well, we've been doing a lot of talking about this matter of evangelizing. We're substituting words for works and profession for our performance. We must really take to heart that well done is better than well said, and that on the great and final day, if it is ours to be on the right hand, it will be then that we'll hear our Lord say, Well done. Not well said, not well planned, but well done thou good and faithful servant and an analysis of that will simply reveal that for a man one day by god's grace and through the cleansing efficacy of the blood of christ and through his having appropriated that blood to his soul and that grace to his very self through his obedience it will be then the lord will say what Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Analyze. It simply means we will enter into glory upon the basis of having done. Well done. Not only having done, but having done well. Well done. Next, that we have been good. There's only one way to be good, and that's to be godly. Good and God are from the same root word. And so we must do, we must do well. We must do, we must do well. We must do well, and we must be godly. But then he will say. Well done thou good and faithful. A definition of faithful is simply look at the word itself. That means full of faith. And Bible faith is always a living, active, animate, dynamic, moving force in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. It will move them, propel them, and drive them to do exactly what God says, how God says do it, and for the reason God says do it, and when God says do it. And so if we're saved on the judgment day, it will be because because we're full of faith. So we must do, we must do well. We must do, do well. We must be godly. But not only that, but we must also, says this passage, be full of faith. But then he says, well done thou good and faithful servant and therefore it will be contingent upon the degree of service. And so acceptance will not be upon how much service have we received, but how much service have we rendered. And so then upon the contingency of these five observations, having done, having done well, having been godly, having been faithful, and having been a servant, our Lord will say on that day, enter thou in. But among those five he does say that we must be indeed a doer. No wonder the Lord's brother said in James 1, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. That simply says that we are self-deceived and self-deluded. That is, somehow or another, we've convinced ourselves upon that great and final morn. We're going to hear the Lord say, a thou into the joys of thy Lord. And we have set upon the stool of complacency and unconcern and indifference in this matter of winning souls to Jesus Christ. We must be doers, doers of the word. That simply means be a performer, not a professor. That simply means be active and not just a talker. Why are we not evangelizing? We are guilty of the sin of substitution. We're substituting, we're substituting training for teaching, and we're substituting words for works and profession for performance. And then thirdly, we are guilty of the sin of substitution in that We are substituting worship for work. I believe that one of our grave problems today, whether it relates to innovations, or whether it relates to inactivity in the kingdom of God, really evolves around this matter of my concept of worship for example many times today people at least it seems in concept if not in affirmation believe that attendance is to be equated with worship nothing could be farther from the truth It's possible for a man to attend every single service on the church calendar and die and be lost. He was an attender, but he never worshipped God. I used to get quite exercised when I would hear people say in the context of the local church situation, somebody would stop attending and... We'd go and see them, or somebody on the visitation team would go and see, and they'd come back with the reporting of the visit, and they'd say, Well, they're visiting around, and uh, they've about decided to place their membership elsewhere, though they've visited a few times here. And really, what they said was, Well, we just didn't get much out of the service. And I used to get quite exercised about that. But not, not anymore. For I believe here is what has happened, brethren, and I don't want to be facetious or unkind, but I do want to be accurate. If we're not careful, what happens is this. We enter the meeting house, and we take our favorite pew, and most of us have. You know, there's that spot where we always situate ourselves in the building. And so we go to that favorite spot, and then we get all fixed. You ever thought about how much time brethren spend getting fixed in a worship service? No, you get getting fixed they're either getting fixed to get the worship service started well, after the song leaders already started the first song or we've stood two or three different times and many times we overworked that incidentally and we stand up and down during a worship service and time they all sit back down and get fixed again you know and all of that this time to stand again we get fixed and then by the time you know we have finished taking the Lord's Supper and even when the contribution basket has not even come our way though that's an item through which we uh, can pay reverence and respect unto God we're getting fixed to leave and so we're getting the coat on and getting everybody adjusted How much time we spend getting so we come in and get fixed and then we sometimes after we get fixed fold our arms as if to say to whoever's behind the stand on the podium now I challenge you to entertain and not long detain me and so If the song leader doesn't sing the correct number of songs and pitch them exactly right, if the brother doesn't enunciate just exactly right, and the preacher doesn't choose just the exact lesson, and he doesn't cut off an exact, you know, amount, then we complain about that. Now, what's our real problem? I believe our real problem is basic in that somehow or another we have conceived that worship is largely a receiving experience. I believe the Bible teaches that worship is largely a giving experience. Worship is courtesy or reverence or awe paid unto deity. And whenever true worship is engaged in, there is really only one personality, and I speak very reverently there. There is only one personality in the audience, and that's God. And all the rest of us, as it were, on the stage, we are performers, as it were. We are participants in true worship, rather than simply being spectators in an audience. So that then, when really true worship obtains, it is a matter of coming into the worship service. And when we sing, Have Thine own way, Lord, we sing that from the bottom of our souls. We sing that from the root of our hearts and not from the roof of our mouths. And we really mean that, and we say, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, and I am the clay. Won't you just take me and mold me after thy will, while I am waiting, yielded and still. And then the brother leads us in prayer, and he says, And Father, bless Brother Jones, and restore him to his health. And we say in our hearts silently, Oh, Lord, I was there yesterday. I saw him writhing in excruciating agony. Won't you hear us today? Won't you hear us today? And bless Brother Jones. We love him, want him back in service. won't you do that? And then the preacher gets up to preach. And we, as it were, sit out on the edge of our pew with the attitude, Oh, Lord, through thy servant today, speak, speak, and I will hear. Command, and I will obey. And the preacher says, Today I want to study the word of the Lord with you out of the general subject field of Christian stewardship. And you say, Oh, Lord, I need help there. I've grown a little, but I need more help. I don't want money to keep me out of heaven won't you help me to learn something today to help me do better and be better in this field and then we sing the invitation song and we have somebody picked out in the audience with whom we have been working perhaps and we say as we sing the song with a song in our lips but a prayer in our hearts and we say oh lord won't you help him today won't he respond hope he, hope he respond won't you bless him and then we observe the lord's supper Perhaps even tears course themselves down our cheeks as we visualize to the best of our human ability. That scene on Golgotha's brow and I, Lord, was bathed in human spittle and in his own blood and died for the sins of me. And then when the contribution basket is passed, I don't put my money into the basket. But as I give, I give with the concept in mind, Lord. This is slipping out of my hand into thine. And in a very overt way, this is how much I love thee. And then we pray. And Father, as we leave, dismiss us with our love and care and bring us back at the next appointed. And we say in heart, O oh Lord, the next appointed time, as David said, I'll be glad when it'll come time to come to the house of God again today. Hasten the hour. Amen. The service is over. Now that's when Brent men really worship. It's a participation activity. Not a matter of, and now entertain and not long detain me. Why do we say I don't get anything out of it? It's because we're largely conceiving of worship as a receiving experience rather than something in which we engage and we give unto God. Now, whenever we worship God as we should indeed, there is this matter of giving. I have poured out my very heart, soul, and my very self in adoration and in praise unto God. And corresponding to there is a filling, there is a filling of me with a renewed commitment and a renewed zeal and a renewed interest and a renewed determination to live for God and to serve God with a full realization that I serve God by serving men. And thus I leave to visit my sick brethren, to comfort my sick brethren, to win my lost neighbor, and to do what I can to bring glory and honor unto God. We have some false concept about worship And one of them is, it is a receiving experience largely rather than a giving experience. And another one being that, as long as I attend, I'm a faithful worshiper. I'm faithful in worship. No, maybe faithful in being present, but altogether different in being faithful in worship. And I believe another misconcept of worship exists in our day and time as it existed in the days of uh, Israel of old. I wish we had the time today to deal with Isaiah chapter 1. But really what was happening in Isaiah chapter 1 was that the people of Israel were still coming to the house of God, offering God their sacrifices and burnt offerings whenever they were doing what? whenever they were guilty of sin upon top of sin. And so the Lord says, I don't want any more of your oblations. I don't want any more of your sacrifices. What I want you to do is wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings, and so on. And then he says this, you are to seek justice. You are to relieve the oppressed. You are to judge the fatherless, and you are to plead for the widow. What's he simply saying? He is simply saying that we cannot isolate the lives that we live from the worship that we render. I am not afraid. That all of life is worship. But I am simply here saying that we cannot be justified in our worship when our lives are inconsistent with the teaching of God. Worship will not in a way at all cover, conceal, or compensate for a failure of our lives to be in consistency with the teaching of God himself. I suppose that that particular transgression reached the height Uh, during the days of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, you have the prophet of God really giving unto us three distinct points. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, he tells Judah, That unless they change their way, they are going into Babylonian captivity. And therefore, the text says, Heal you down, trees. Cast them out against Jerusalem. This is the city to be visited. She has holy oppression in the midst of her. And then the text goes ahead and says, They shall thoroughly glean the remnant of Israel as a vine. Talking about uh, the Babylonians when they come and so on. So here he is threatening destruction. That's verses 1 through 10. Then, in the last section, 26 through 30, you have a call to repentance. Won't you, Jeremiah pleads, repent in view of impending destruction. But now, sandwiched in between those two paragraphs, in verses 10 through 25, there is a cataloging of six transgressions that precipitated Babylonian captivity. And to be very brief, and only to lift excerpts from this section, we note, first of all, in verse 10, Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. One sin that precipitated Babylonian captivity was no delight in the word of God. And then in verse 13, Far from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. The second sin that precipitated Babylonian captivity was covetousness in the pew. The third sin is in verse 14. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people. Talking about the priests and so on. Slightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The third sin that precipitated Babylon in captivity was smoothness in the pulpit. The fourth sin that precipitated that captivity is verse 15. Neither could they blush; they had become non-sensitive to sin. And then, in verse 16, we have the fifth sin. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, see and ask for the old paths, wherein is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they say, We will not walk therein. That fifth sin then was a repudiation of the old paths. And the sixth and final sin listed is in verse 20. To what purpose cometh there to me? Incense. Incense. There's worship from Sheba, and the sweet Cain from a far country. Your burnt offerings, theirs worship, are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet unto me. Why? Why had God said that your worship is no longer sweet unto me, no longer acceptable unto me, simply because they had degenerated to the plain? That they were using worship as a cover-up, as a concealment of a life inconsistent with divine revelation, as was presented to them by the prophets of old. In like manner, I believe today that we must come to realize that acceptable living is attached to acceptable worship, and acceptable worship is attached to acceptable living. This idea that somehow or another that I can discharge my responsibilities by simply attending Being inside the confines of the four walls, and then my life during the week is inconsistent. Maybe not through lying, maybe not through immorality, and through the other matters that would be on that side of the ledger. But my life can be inconsistent, as was Israel, in that I am guilty of the sins of omission. They were not relieving the oppressed. They were not judging the fatherless. And today, maybe I need help in that area. Or maybe I'm not teaching the lost. What's my point? We need to make very sure that in addition to worshiping God, that we are working for God. Worship, yes, as it were, on Lord's Day, but also serve God by being at work in His venue, the sole winner in His service, throughout the entire week. But what's happening? We are substituting the worship for the work. Point in, uh, of emphasis. You know, Brother Joel. yes. Oh, he's such a fine worker in the church. Good. What does he do? Well, you know, you never see the church house doors open that he's not here. Ask him to wait on the table, lead a prayer, pass out. He's willing to do it. What are we doing? He's a good worker. Why? He's there and he'll serve in a worship service. Has he been to the hospital? Has he been to the home for the aged? Has he invited a friend to the recent gospel meeting? Has he taught a cottage Bible class? Has he invited a friend to the service? Has he written a friend that he's known a day has gone by and say, may I send a correspondence course to you? What are we saying? We're saying, brethren, that we are largely equating our working for God for our attendance at worship services. Now, that is a hindrance to evangelism. We are guilty of the sin of substitution. I believe another sin of substitution existed among us is that we are substituting methods for the message. I affirm that if we are not acquainted with the message and the right message, that all the methods in the world at the bottom line of it all, are ineffective. For years now, our emphasis has been on methodology. And I think healthily, healthily so. We needed help here. How do you make an effective approach? How do you make an effective close? When you've taught somebody and you really want to encourage them to say, let's go to the Baptist district tonight. I want to become a New Testament. We needed help there. And thus we have given that. But I sincerely believe that our present need is not so much now an emphasis in methodology as it is now an emphasis on message. And many times I look in vain, as no doubt many of you do, at the agendas that deal with full winning. And I see this methodology class, and this methodology class, and this methodology class, but look in vain for classes on learning the book of Acts are learning the book of 1 Thessalonians, are learning the book of Ezekiel, we need to understand the message. We who are soul winners need to be indeed serious students of the Bible and possess a knowledge thereof. I believe another sin of substitution existed among us is we were substituting plans for performance. Many hours are spent In various planning sessions, in meetings, discussing, formulating, outlining, and transcribing plans for some evangelistic thrust. But let us avoid saving our consciences and our responsibility of winning souls to the Lord merely by planning it. As Brother L.A. Kelly, uh, who was an elder many years ago in the church in Eosho, Missouri, used to say, We need to plan our work and we need to work our plan. It is in that latter part, my friends, that many times we are deficient. But now with that one hindrance having been discussed, and that is that a hindrance to evangelism is the sin of substitution. I would like to now make a transition and observe a second one. Another hindrance to evangelism locally and abroad is that we have become entangled in congregational, um, organizational church machinery and promotion until we do not get out where the people are. I am very sure of these good churches that we have just studied by means of these bu- bulletin surveys and many of them are good churches, really they are. You would know of them if I were to call their names and you would concur. And they have regular business meetings. And they have planning sessions. And they have all sorts of teams. And all sorts of efforts. And all sorts of nights set aside for this, that, and the other. But what's the point? How many conversions? Suppose we were to have subtracted from these churches averaging about 400 in attendance the fact that they're having about 20 to 25 baptisms and subtract therefrom rebaptisms that are quite. Popular at times today. Or we were to subtract therefrom those who were baptized within the ages of 11 and 13. Would it be fair, and we need to be fair, brethren, not just be uh, dramatic to make a point, but fair? Let's be fair. And if we were to say, well, 50% of them, that would probably be liberal. Of uh, the number just mentioned, would be that. That would only leave about 10 to 12 people. Only 10 to 12. Out of 400 to 425 people, that are being baptized each and every year. And yet, what do they have? Teams. Why do they have? Visitation nights. Why do they have? Personal evangelism closets. Why do they have? All sorts of lists and charts and graphs. And, and yet, we're not getting the job done. Can I say We are becoming entangled in congregational organization. A fellow gospel preacher once said to me, Brother Winkler, this is the best organized church I have ever seen. On paper. On paper. He was simply saying that we are really diluting our soul winning efforts through congregational machinery congregational machinery we have all heard in the last several years and we need to hear it again that our pure minds might be stirred up by way of remembrance and that is that if we're not careful, we will constantly be engaged in, quote, church work, quote, to where we never really save souls. And I simply mean by that church work, this matter of planning it and making the charts and getting the teams organized and having the team suppers and, and never really get out and convert the people to Jesus Christ. It's like, you know, that little elderly lady in a faint voice when she asked the question, one of the gigantic colossal cathedrals of Europe. And the tour guide was showing this spire and this column and that tapestry and that stained glass window and that mighty pulpit and that big pipe organ and all of that. And she just faintly, you know, asked the question in that little trembling voice, been any souls saved here lately? And I wonder how many of us could ask that in our meeting houses today. Been any souls saved here lately? I didn't ask, have you organized visitation teams lately? I did not ask, have you appointed an evangelization committee lately? Have you run any charts lately? Have you made any graphs lately? The question still comes ringing in the ears and hearts of all of us, have there been any soul saved here lately? Students despise busy work, and if I was a student, so would I. I believe when assignments are given, there needs to be a purpose behind it and a goal and an end in view. Like-minded, we're not careful. We'll spend our times in local churches in in busy work to where the goal and the end in mind is never reached. Our Lord's commission still says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. But somehow or another, though we have many things which to be grateful today on the positive side of the ledger, we must be scrupulously honest and say... There's an overwhelming challenge out there before us uh, to reach a world that's ripe for the harvest. But thus far we haven't done that as much as we are consciously stricken that we should be doing. But what are the hindrances that are keeping us from thus reaching that given goal? We have the hindrance of a warped sense of values. We have dulled our consciences on excuses. We've allowed our fervency to die down to a spark. We've allowed our convictions to waver. We're not convinced that we're lost if we don't. We have left evangelism to the professionals. We're guilty of the sin of substitution. And we have become entangled in congregational machinery. May the Lord help us to overcome these hindrances and be about the master's business in winning the loss to Christ.